Yes, it's good to be here. You all look really nice this morning. I notice uh, Fellowship Raleigh, pretty casual church. Most Sundays, everybody's a little bit dressed up. You know, that's great. I took my shirt in. Uh, so it's like the first time in a few years, I think. Um, anyways, happy Easter. This morning, uh, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're looking at verses 4 through 7. Looking at verses 4 through 7 in Ephesians 2. Um, the series we've been in in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we've titled Glorious Grace. Every week, we're just seeing how glorious the grace of God is. And um, last week, if you were here, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And I guess I would just say it was like, kind of like a downer in some ways. I mean, it was really heavy. You know, Paul is talking to Christians and he's saying to them, this is who you were before Christ. This is the condition you were in before God saved you. You'll remember, you can look real quick if you want it, chapter 2, 1 through 3, but he, he's like, you were dead spiritually. You, you were following the world, the flesh, even the devil. And then he says, worst of all, resulting from those things, he says, you were condemned. You were condemned. And I posed the question at the end of the sermon last weekend. I put it on the screen, in fact. Maybe we can put it up again, but... What kind of salvation does a condition like that necessitate? Just think about it. Like, like what can you do? Do you just need like, like an example to follow if that's your condition? Can some good works or just like a little bit more morality save you from that? If you really think about the condition that we're in B.C., before Christ, how can good works save a person? We need to be saved. We need to be given new life. We need Easter. So, you know, again, reminder, Ephesians is written to Christians. It's a church at Ephesus. It's written to Christians. The passage assumes that you are a Christian, all right? So if you're not a Christian yet, but you're looking at this passage with us, don't don't feel weird or alienated. Let let me encourage you that, that these verses, they speak about in past tense what has happened to Christians. Just know that in the present tense, that can happen as well for you. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. So, the title of the message this morning is From the Grave to the Hall of Fame. Chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. Right after verses 1 through 3, where we're in the grave. From the grave to the Hall of Fame. In fact, there's a song called Hall of Fame. It's by the script. Uh, So some of you know, some of you don't know, but right now everyone's going to find out. I'm the coach, the head coach, of the Mighty Chipmunks girls seven and under soccer team. And uh, we're undefeated. We're also undefeated last year, just a side note there. But um, <laughs> I've got an assistant coach, team manager. It's very organized. And um, anyways, uh, no games this weekend for Easter. But uh, before every game, I have two kids on the team because I have twin seven-year-olds. Before every game, we ride 
to the game and we listen to certain songs. It's a little superstitious, I know. But uh, we listen to the song Hall of Fame. <laughs> and we listen to the first part of All I Do Is Win. You don't want to go past the first part. It gets a little weird uh, for seven-year-olds. But the uh, Hall of Fame song. You know, you can be the greatest, you can be the best, you can be the King Kong banging on your chest. Some will call it practice, some will call it luck, but either way, you're going to the history book, standing in the Hall of Fame. You know the song. You know the song. And the world's going to know your name because you're going to burn with the brightest flame. Okay, so we literally get hyped for the game listening to this song. And anyways, I just thought I would share that. I don't know why. Um... Now, I do know why. I was looking at also into the real Hall of Fame, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. How do you get into that? It's, uh, it's in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's nearby to the place of the invention of basketball at the YMCA there. And it is not easy to get into the actual Hall of Fame, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. The way you get in is um, you have to be nominated. And the one who nominates you has to turn in press clippings, articles, and videos documenting your legendary performance and contribution to the game of basketball. Your past performance, as documented by the nominator, will then go before four separate review committees, a North American committee, an all-female committee, those who are veterans who have been out of the game of basketball for 35 years committee, and an international committee. That's the process. And finally, a final committee chooses to approve you, and you are then in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. Anyways, I read this on the website. It says that the Hall of Fame, the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame, is a place that claims to honor and celebrate the game's greatest moments and brightest stars. And it gives this recommendation if you visit it's recommended that you allow at least two days to enjoy it all. Perhaps hire a tour guide. So here is the connection. In Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 7, of God's word for us this morning, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he tells us in this passage of an infinitely greater moment and a profoundly brighter star, that being Christ. And particularly in verse 7, our passage today, it speaks in verse 7, it actually talks about heaven as a time and as a place where God will put on display, where he will actually put a trophy case out, where he will show off, like the Hall of Fame, the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Why? For us to ponder for us to take it in. And it takes more than two days to take it in. It takes an eternity to take it in. And so this morning we're looking at these verses. They break down this way, the heart of God, verse 4. That's why God saves us how he does. The hand of God, verse 5 and 6, is how God saves us. In the hall of God's grace, verse 7 the purpose for which he does it all and how he shows it off for eternity. So look with me at the passage. I want to read verse 4 to 7 and then pray, and then we're going to go through that outline that I just gave you. Ephesians 2, verse 4. God, or but God, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. God, we thank You this morning. We bow before You this morning. God, we close our eyes to focus on You this morning. To ask You, Lord, to quiet our hearts. To focus our minds. To open our hearts. To receive Your Word. To be God, what we need is to be encouraged, but to also be challenged that we might take the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbor, to our coworker, across the world. So Lord, would you just move in the way that only you can this morning? Spirit of God, would you convict, would you encourage, would you teach us this morning about your grace? In Jesus' name, on this Easter morning we pray, amen. Grave to the Hall of Fame. So first we're going to look at the heart of God. The heart of God. Why God does what He does. In fact, you know, before we even dive fully into this point, I just want you to see the first two words of verse 4. Again, recall, verse 1-3 through is about as dire of a condition as you could sort of be in. And it's a condition that we were all in. That's the thing. So verse 4 says what? What's there? What's the next two words after verse 3? But God. But God. Not but man. You almost expect it to be like in our day and age and the way we think and talk. You almost expect it to be. We're in a real terrible situation. But we turned over a new leaf. But man. But someone helped another person. But Elon Musk came in. (laughs) But man. No. But God. But God. And and really what we see laid bare here in verse 4 is the heart of God. Why He does what He does. Look at verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, This is his heart. It says, rich in mercy. Again, it's talking about his character. Who are you, God? This is who he is being. Being rich in mercy. The word mercy means to compassionately relieve suffering. Grace addresses the undeserving. Mercy addresses the miserable. We are miserable in verses 1 through 3. Apart from Christ, we are miserable in our sin. Though we may not feel it, see it, know it, it's true. We are when we read God's account of who we are apart from Christ. Mercy, relieving suffering with compassion. Says that God has a little mercy? No, what does it say? It says, but God being rich in mercy. We are rich in sin, in mistakes, in doubts, in shortcomings, 
God is richer in mercy. He can afford to give you mercy this morning. He has enough mercy for everyone here this morning. God's nature is mercy. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. Look at the next key phrase here in this verse four. It says, do you see it? It says, because of. But God, being rich in mercy, do you see it there? Because of. This is why the the point here is the heart of God. This phrase, this little two-word phrase, because of, is indicating to us that right here we're getting God's heart. We're getting the reason, the why behind his action, what prompted him, what's his motive because of. What is it? Because of what? Because of the love with which he loved you. The perspective here is past tense. In effect, Paul is saying here, there is a chain of events that has happened. First, God loved you. And we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that before the foundation of the world, God has chosen those whom he saves. And so he first loved you. Why did he love you? Because you were lovable? No, because he is love. He loved you. He loved you. That's first. And then because he loved you, here's the chain of events, he felt the richness of his mercy well up for you. And then he expressed his saving love and his rich mercy toward you by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sins and to rise from the grave being God and having fully paid the debt. So, this love, this is not just feelings or talk. We know 1 John 3 says it. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So, when Ephesians 2, verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of, the great love with which he loved us, you can say, oh, what love? And you can think, oh, that love demonstrated by Christ dying on the cross. It's objective. It happened. Historical. So here's the thing. Great love leads to mercy. Little or no love leads to little mercy, little sympathy. Think about it. You watch the end of a trial and and a murderer who is convicted and found guilty and he definitely did it. And you look at their family and they're doing what? They're crying. Why? Because they feel bad. Why? Because they love them. Are you crying? No, you're not. You don't know them. You don't love them. They love him or her. And from that love flows Mercy flows sympathy, flows heart. God has been rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you and me, the guilty. That's the point of verse 4. Our situation apart from Christ as sinners before a holy God is terribly grim. But this God who is holy, who condemns sin, 
is in his heart amazingly loving. He's shown it to you and me. Luke 15 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's the story of the prodigal son. And I'm not going to go through the whole story, but if you know it, the son goes away, he sins, he's wayward, he's rebellious, and he comes to himself, it says, and he returns home thinking the father will probably not accept him. He'd like to just get on staff at the father's sort of company and be as one of his hired men. And it says in 15 verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. That's mercy. And the father ran and embraced and kissed him. That's the collision of verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7. That's the collision of our hopelessness and sin and God's amazing mercy and love. So first point, the heart of God. Second point, second point, the hand of God. So what does God do? How does God save you? How can you be saved? What does the hand of God do for you? Well, look at verse 5 and 6. Let me read them again. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you notice as we read those verses, listen, listen, this is very important. Do you notice as we just read those verses, how many times there is a phrase like with him, with him, in him, together with him. Did you see that? Everything's like about this union that we as Christians are supposed to have with Christ, with him. Union with Christ. Did you know that's the primary activity of the grace of God and one of the greatest truths of Christianity is how we, when we put our faith in Christ, are in every way bonded, infused, welded, cemented to Christ. Such that where He is, we are. We identify with Him. His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His reign, by grace, we are vitally connected to Christ. Oh, wow, yeah, that's what the Bible's talking about when it says, I am the vine and you are the branches, or he is the head of the, and you are the body of Christ. We're one. We're connected when we're in Christ. Here's an example. Imagine yourself at the airport about to board a plane from Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne, Australia, sunny Melbourne is where you want to be. What relationship do you need to have with the plane at this point? Would it help to be under the plane? To submit yourself to the plane's imminent authority and the whole flying to Melbourne thing? Would it help to be inspired by the plane? To watch it fly off and say to yourself, one day I hope to do that too. What about following the plane? You know, the plane's going to Melbourne, and so it stands to reason that if you take note of the direction that it's going in and pursue it and follow it to that end, you'll end up there too. Of course, the key relationship that you need to have with the plane is not to be under it, behind it, or inspired by it. You need to be what? With it. You need to be in it. 
Because by being in or with the plane, what happens, here's the key, to the plane is what's going also to happen to you. The question, did you get to Melbourne, Australia, will be part of a larger question, did the plane get to Melbourne, Australia? And if the answer to the second question is yes, and if you were in the plane, then what happened to the plane is what will happen to you. You follow? Union with Christ. A person who has been saved by God. A person who's really a Christian is with Christ. That is what is being described here. Paul gives us three verbs, and each of them talk about what God has done in us together with Christ. God is the subject of all three verbs. We have done none of this for ourselves. All God. So what has God done for us? Again, the hand of God. There are three subpoints here. Okay? A new life, a new perspective, and a new position. There are three subpoints here. The first one is, He has made me alive with Jesus. A new life from verse 5. Look at it. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive, do you see it here? Together with Christ. You see that union with Christ, that key point there? By grace, you have been saved. Now again, I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon on verses 1 through 3, but Paul does refer to it here when he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he already said that in verse 1. Just remember, apart from Christ, Your greatest problem is not that you are a bad person. It's worse. It's that you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You are spiritually disconnected from the true God of the Bible. And you need life. You need to be born again. You need to be given new life. So after dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus on that first Easter morning, He rose from the grave together with Christ, as our faith bonds us to Him, we as Christians have also been made alive, given new life in Christ. Amazing. A new life with Christ. Look at this outburst. It's like a parenthetical outburst. He just jumps into it. He's like, oh, by grace you have been saved. Do you see that? Do you see that? He's going to go more into that in verses 8 through 10, which we'll get to. Not this week. But by grace you have been saved. The word grace literally means unmerited favor. It's used 155 times in the New Testament. The word saved means delivered or rescued from peril. He's like, by grace you've been saved. The hand of God. New life. Now, the second subpoint is that God, the hand of God, here's what God's done. He's raised me with Jesus. New perspective. Now, this is not referring to the resurrection. He's raised me with Jesus, meaning He's lifted me up, the ascension of Christ. He has raised me up with Him. You see, it goes on, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But just talking first about how we've been raised up And given this new perspective, our perspective was that we were following the course of this world, the devil, our flesh. 
We knew and could know nothing else. However, after dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead, and when He was raised and ascended into heaven, us being bonded to Him by our faith, also are there. Together with Christ, we have been given new life. We've been raised, ascended. Being raised to heaven with Christ, we now have a different view, a new perspective. Our eyes are open. We can see life through the eyes of Christ. We can see life with eternity in full view. This is our new perspective, the perspective of heaven. We have new values. We seek different goals. We've been given new life. We've been given a new perspective. And now, what has the hand of God done? He seated me with Jesus, given me a new position. Look at verse 6, the second part. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So our position in verse 3 was what? What was it? It was that we are condemned. But now, just four verses later, we are seated with Christ. This is a picture of power, royalty, accomplishment, stability, rest, and fellowship. Jesus rose from the dead, was raised and ascended to heaven. Being finished, not being stressed out at all, being king, he sat down on his throne. He pulled up a chair to his dining room table in heaven. Together with Christ, we have been seated on the throne and we have been seated at the table. We have a new spiritual life. We have a new perspective. We have, loved ones, a new position. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, there's this story about one of uh, King Saul's great-great-grandsons, Mephibosheth. And he's crippled. And when David becomes king, he's terrified that he's going to be sort of like killed and eliminated because he may be a threat. And I'll just read you this. Verse 7, it says, And David said to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. You see that? I will show you kindness for the sake of another. That's exactly what God does with us. He shows us kindness for the sake of Christ. I will show you kindness for the sake of your Father Jonathan, and I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall, here it is, eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? What a picture of being given a new position because of grace. So the heart of God, His mercy, His love, the hand of God, This new life, new perspective, and new position. And now, finally, the hall of God's grace from verse 7. The hall of God's grace. Look at verse 7. It says this, so that, and you know that's a key phrase, right? Because that means we're starting to talk about why he did all this, the purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might show, that's God, he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is an awesome verse. And you haven't studied it before. You know how I know it? Because this is a Drew Bledsoe verse. 
Who's the quarterback before Tom Brady for the New England Patriots? You don't know, do you? Drew Bledsoe. Many people, their favorite verses in the Bible are Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10. And so they don't even know what verse 7 says. The Drew Bledsoe verse. So, this verse is amazing, though. It's amazing. It's the verse that we got the title for the message from. I mean, it's so significant. Let's, let's break it down. So that, so that, here's why God did verses four through six. Here's what he's doing. He says, in the coming ages, that's plural. That's not one age, but two ages. What does that mean? That means in this age, like the future from the time that Ephesians was written till the return of Christ, that's age one. We're going to have plural ages here, so that's age one. The second age is once Christ returns for eternity. So he's like, in the coming ages, here's what's going to happen. That's what Paul's saying. Here's what's going to happen. In the coming ages, he might show. The word literally means to display. Picture yourself in a high school gymnasium. You're walking in. Before you get into the gym, you see that wall, the trophy case. Display case. And he might show. Same word in 1 Timothy 1. Paul says about himself, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might show, might display his patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I like this translation of this verse from the New Living Translation of Paraphrase. It says, so God can always point to us as examples of the incredible wealth of his favor and kindness toward us. The hall of God's grace. Quite a verse, verse 7. Quite a picture to see what God's plan is, what he's trying to do. We talked at the beginning about the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. Compare that to God's Hall of Grace. How do you get into the Naismith Hall of Fame? Personal performance. How do you get into heaven? Jesus' performance. How do you really... You know, how does it become official? How does it begin? A nominator or a committee must put your name forward for Naismith. But for heaven, you must attain union with Christ by faith in Christ. How long does it take to take all the glory in in the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame? Fortunately, the website guides us in that. Two days. How long does it take to take in the hall of grace. Two ages, verse 7 says, forever. Here's the thing. Often, we live like we are pursuing entrance into heaven based on our performance for God. Hustling and hiding, pretending and performing, doubting and despairing, striving, But the only way that God will have it with you, listen, the only way God will have it, the only way you can be okay with God is if He takes you 
with Christ. From the grave, from the lowest of lows, to the highest of highs, to heaven, to the grace hall of fame. Oh, if Christians, if all people, if we, just us this morning, would only see from this passage, and especially from this verse, verse 7, that it is God's plan and purpose to display not your performance, but His. His saving and transforming work in you, which is the ongoing and eternal testimony of what is called the riches of His immeasurable grace. Would that not be so restful, so joyful, so peaceful, so pure, so exciting? From the grave of verse 3 to the hall of fame of verse 7, hey, may you be found in that story. May you live from that story. May you share that story with others. I want to invite the band to come back and lead us to respond. If you'll bow with me and pray.